Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brand. 2022 was a big year for direct digital holdings. The Black-owned programmatic business went public just over a year ago after years of successive growth. The company includes a buy-side business for mid-market brands and a sell-side business focused on monetizing diverse-owned and targeted publishers. As Direct Digital Holdings has grown, it is aimed to create more programmatic access for underserved publishers who are often disadvantaged on company media plans and block lists. The business recently published a white paper that proves that brands are leaving money on the table by not engaging with diverse audiences where they spend their time. In this episode, Walker also chats about his career as a Black entrepreneur in ad tech and shares his hopes for DE&I efforts in the industry in a worsening economic context. I'm your host, Allison Weisbrot, the editor of Campaign US, and you're listening to Campaign Chemistry. Hi, Mark. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Happy to have you here today. So talk to me a little bit about Direct Digital Holdings. What exactly is the company and, and what do you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So to, to in the most simplest forms, um, what we do is we help companies buy and sell media and we leverage technology to do it. Um, our company is very unique because we're focused on two different markets. We're focused on the middle market, which we define as small businesses that are in the tier two, tier three media markets that make about five to $500 million in revenue. That's our buy side business that we work with. And then on the sell side, what makes us unique is we actually have a SSP or supply side platform where we work with multicultural publishers, bringing them into the programmatic ecosystem along with the general market so that we can give media buyers a one-stop shop to reach the 40% of the United States that define themselves as multicultural along with the general market. Yeah, it's super interesting. I think both are two pretty like underserved uh, markets, right? In the, in the advertising space. So, so talk to me about like, you know, you created the business. Talk about like where you saw white space for it and and sort of why you decided to go off and um, create this business. Yeah, absolutely. So to give you a little bit of color how we got here, um, you know, I started my career off back in um, in 1999, back in the uh, heyday of the, the dot-com boom. Um, that's really kind of where I cut my teeth in the digital space. And I learned everything from how to build a website, how to work with developers, how to do biz dev and all those pieces. From that piece, um, I had an opportunity to really move into digital marketing. And that's when I I first learned SEO, SEM. Even before Google became the juggernaut that it was, I was working with GoTo and Yahoo, um, you know, websites like AltaVista, which people probably don't even know about uh, these days. I remember. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So that was really where I cut my teeth. And then needless to say, the dot-com didn't work like most of them back in that day. But it really left me with the strong foundation that I've been able to build upon for the rest of my career. Went to Deloitte for a hot second, uh, worked there for three years. That gave me a, a wealth of experience around the biz dev side. And then moved to where I really cut my teeth in a Fortune 300 company um, called Energy Energy, where I was responsible for building out their whole digital sales platform. That's where I got the first opportunity, really, to um, understand how to leverage digital media to drive ROI and specifically drive KPIs. So that gave me a top-down view of the value chain. While I was there, 
had the chance to, because um, I was successful building out the digital sales portion, they gave me the opportunity to become an entrepreneur and they gave me a couple million dollars to go figure out new ways to drive revenue. So I was able to actually um, grow that side of the business to where by the end, um, after another five years, uh, I had grown that division to about a, a billion dollars of revenue. The problem was I realized if I had succeeded, great, I got none of the upside. But if I had failed, I would have gotten fired. So that's when I got the entrepreneur itch. Um, and so my business partner, a good friend of mine, he ended up investing in a small multicultural publisher called Ebony Media. And asked me, because he knew I had digital experience, asked if I'd be interested in working with um, the guys who purchased it um, to become their COO and help them with the digital transformation. And that's when I really saw the opportunity from the publisher side of where the gaps in the market actually existed. Um, And when I was at Ebony, I saw that multicultural publishers who did not have 10 million unique visitors coming on a monthly basis we're having difficulty getting plugged into the programmatic ecosystem. And so I was talking to other multicultural publishers who were struggling with programmatic. And that's when we started getting the idea, the genesis of actually um, creating direct digital holdings. The way we created it was we purchased two um, small platforms. At that time, it was one company was called Huddle Masses. They were working with the middle market, um, specifically helping them with buying media. And then Colossus at that time was doing about 17,000 of revenue. And they were working on trying to connect the multicultural publishers into the programmatic ecosystem. We knew there was more value bringing them underneath the same umbrella, having the opportunity of working on both sides of the value chain. And from there, we started growing the business. So when we bought the company, they were unprofitable. They weren't doing well. Um, We ended up cleaning them up getting them profitable. We bought them collectively. They were doing about $6 million in revenue. Then we grew it to $7 million and got it profitable. And then after there, we bolted on another uh, buy-side platform, Orange 142, that was really focused in on the what they call the destination marketing organizations. So it gave us a whole new industry output to go after. So that's where we had the complete platform built of what you see today. And then the whole time, when Colossus was coming along, it had started off at 17,000 of revenue. The next year, it grew to about 300,000. The year after that, we grew it to about 2.9 million. And then this year, we're probably will be, and then the next year, it grew to 12. And then after that, um, right now, we look like we'll be about 50 to 60 million of revenue. So it really helped us, um, you know, having them collectively work together, having the experience of seeing the buy side and the sell side working in conjunction. I think you're seeing a lot of ad tech companies moving into that, uh, into that type of model today. So that's how we yeah. got here. For sure. And I think um, that's especially for the type of markets you're serving, having that connection and one stop shop is so important, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But first, um, it's been just over a year since Direct Digital Holdings went public. So that's super exciting. Um, Talk about how the you know what this milestone means for you and for your business. Yeah, the milestone. It's good. I mean, being a publicly traded company is a uh, it's a whole feat in and of itself. Um, just getting here. Um, my business partner and I, what is different is we're not VC funded. We weren't VC backed. We bootstrapped the company ourselves. So for us, we viewed 
going public as not an exit, but really, really the beginning of our journey. Um, it was a fight to get to this point, but we see it as a, the beginning of our journey and being public for a year. We, we've actually enjoyed it. The amount of, um, press that we've gotten from it has been very favorable, but even more so, it gave us the access to capital that you need in order for partners who want to work with you to have the faith and confidence that you're going to be around tomorrow. And that's one of the benefits that um, we had saw for the long run about us being public was the fact that, you know, companies and partners that want to work with us, our financials are public. They know we have the right processes in place. They know that, you know, on a whim, I can't just do anything I want to with the finances of the company. I think it gives our partners a lot of faith and confidence that we're going to be around for the long haul. And that's one of the most exciting parts about it. Yeah. I mean, it's also a huge personal accomplishment, right? And it's inspiring to see a black owned business, you know, go public on the, on the New York stock exchange. So talk a little bit about that and about what it's taken to sort of get there for you as an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that um, myself I'm passionate about is not just bringing um, diversity um, for publishers into the programmatic ecosystem. It's really more about giving people who um, look like America, if you will, um, an opportunity to work in the ad tech space. If you look at our board of directors, it's a majority minority board where our lead director is African-American female. We have a white female, Misty Locke, who's on our board as well, who's CMO of Dentsu. Um, I think what you'll see is our leadership team, same thing, majority, minority. And if you look at our operating team, it's majority, minority. 60% of our company is female, is female, uh, 40% is male, and it's actually a majority, minority company. And so we have 77 employees. Um, and a lot of them were working in the ad tech space and, and had difficulty rising. And so we gave them a shot and many of them have flourished. Um, and I think you can see it by the outsized returns and the profitability of the company that deliberate diversity and putting people with unique backgrounds, different backgrounds can actually deliver outsized results. And that's what we're excited about. And that's really, you know, we don't talk about that mission, but that's really one of the primary missions of what we're doing today is that it's giving people an opportunity in this space. Yeah, I think you should talk about it more because it's definitely, I think, you know, the diversity that you reflect on your own team allows you to successfully pursue, uh, you know, goals and missions like increasing programmatic access to diverse publishers because you understand the, the scope of the problem. You've experienced it firsthand. Talk about how, you know, that like the, the makeup of your team has led to the success of what what you guys are trying to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when we talk about the makeup of our team, what I've observed um, by having such a diverse team is you get those unique perspectives and the unique insights that you normally wouldn't have seen. Um, our CTO, she's South Asian. Um, she one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. When I hear her and with the partners that we work with, she understands a lot of the cultural nuances that um, most people don't, they don't get or understand just because she understands the background, she understands the mentality, she understands the culture. Those add value to how we operate, how we function today. In addition to that, when it comes to language differences, our chief growth officer, um, she's an immigrant, her family were immigrants from Nicaragua. And that experience and that insight 
um, is part of makes who she is today. And she brings that passion and that energy into the organization. And it's a unique perspective. What we have seen is when you bring those unique perspectives into the room together to brainstorm ideas for clients and customers, you usually can bring a different insight into the room and introduce new concepts into the conversation. Whereas if everyone looked like me, everyone talked like me, everybody was from Houston, Texas, I'm only going to bring one slice of the equation um, into the room. And it's that diversity that really has fueled our outside performance that we've been able to experience over the last year. Yeah. So I want to talk about um, the diverse media space, because I know that's where you have a lot of um, experience and passion. And um, it's it's a conversation that's picked up in recent years, I would say, especially after 2020 and sort of the racial reckoning that the the country and the advertising industry went through. Um, but it's a problem that's been around for a long time. And it's something I think that you've noticed early on. Has anything changed since it's become a bigger topic of discussion? I mean, there's now like Companies like IPG Media Brands hosting equity upfront. So, so there's more eyes on this topic, but what, in your opinion, has actually moved the needle? What I think moves the needle is ROI, um, KPI and ROI. The, the stat I try to point um, most of our clients and partners to is that 40% of the United States is multicultural, African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, and then LBGTQ community. And when you put the LBGTQ community on top of it, it's really more over 50%. There's only, based on the ANA study, 4 or 5% of media spend actually looking to target in an authentic way those audiences. When you have that much, that much of a dislocation in spend to reach, what you're missing is growth opportunities. We just recently um, released a, a white paper study, which I don't know if you've seen, um, that outlines that. And the position that we take in regards to diversity is it's not the right thing to do. Um, it's really about if you want growth, if you want growth in your industry, if you want growth in your business, missing out on speaking to 40% of the U.S. population, you're not going to be able to grow. As a matter of fact, your competitors will before you. So the business case we're making and as a company, what we believe in, it's really about driving ROI. And it's not just the right thing to do. It's actually the smart thing to do. And that's the position that we take. If you want to grow your business, you speak to those audiences. Yeah, I did see the white paper and it had some really fascinating stats in there. Um, at the same time, though, it's it's not surprising, right? Like it's no. it's something that, you know, people have been saying over and over again. The research has proven time and again that being more conscious of diversity, reaching diverse audiences, speaking to them in media outlets and ways that they like to to read and speak and understand leads to better business results. So what is there still a disconnect in the business world about this? And if so, why? Um, the biggest disconnect that I've seen is most companies believe multicultural um, is 5%, 10%. I think the last census study showing that 40% of the U.S. population is actually made up of multicultural, I think that was a shock to a lot of people in the business community. Historically, I, I remember when, you know, back in the, uh, I'm going to say mid-2000s, total market was the rave. Everyone talked about, oh, total market marketing, total market advertising. I think what people are starting to realize is people do um, 
participate in the total market or the general market, but then there's authenticity with multicultural publishers, with multicultural outlets where people look for those connections. The prime example I give is if you're um, in, and I will tell you my CTO was one who explained it to me. She said Times of India is uh, it's a, it's a nice site. Well, a very well run site, 7 million unique visitors. They're connected to us. The interesting thing about them is if you are an immigrant from India, that is like the New York Times for that community. Most most companies don't even know that or even think about. That's really a way to reach that specific population. If I want to find out what the cricket score was back in India from my hometown, am I going to find that on ESPN or I'm going to find that in the Times of India? So it's about getting that reach, getting that authenticity and understanding that culture that if you want to make those connections and grow your product, that's what the white paper showed was that A, those audiences notice when you do advertise, but B, they also notice when you don't. And when they realize you don't, there's usually a negative ramification for your business because they're not going to want to support your business because they see you're not supporting their community. And I think that was one of the biggest highlights we got out of the uh out of the white paper study was that piece of it as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess obviously identifying the issue is, is one step, right? But how do, what barriers do these publishers still face when it comes to connecting with, especially like larger brands and media agencies and getting that on their radar? Uh, What are some of the challenges that still exist? Yeah. I would say that they're, they're twofold. One, some of the publishers, especially when you're talking about more of the smaller, the long tail niche sites, there's some technical issues that we, we as a company help them work through to try to get them connected into the ecosystem. That's number one. Um, that is always an issue. And we've seen that problem time and time again. And that's one of the reasons why we're so vested in the community so that we can help them make those connections to get pro- connected in. The second piece that we've also seen an impact is around brand safety. Um, One of the things that we experienced when I was back in Ebony was that a lot of the information that we provide is news from an African-American perspective. Well, as you know, in programmatic news is usually a lower CPM and then the level of exclusion words that are actually connected to it are relatively high. I use the word in my everyday vernacular, the word dope. I'll say, oh, that's those are some nice glasses. Those glasses look dope. Well, if you have dope as an exclusion word, and I use that on Ebony's website, that's going to have a negative ramification for that publisher. In addition to that, um, while I was at Ebony, one of the biggest issues we faced was, unfortunately, the, the word Ebony had been hijacked for um, the porn industry. And so we found ourselves on a significant amount of exclusion list, even though Ebony had been around for 75 years, um, it had a negative ramification. And unfortunately, um, what we have seen is people are not really spending a lot of attention on those exclusion lists for those cultural sensitivities that can actually help them generate revenue um, for the long haul and also Um, get scale and reach. And so that's part of the education process that we work through with brands and agencies and helping them get a better understanding of those cultural nuances that they need some more sensitivity around inside of their organizations. 
Yeah, I want to follow up on both of those points. So on the technical integration side, I think there's like sort of a misconception that you can just sort of turn on, you know, a Google account and you're you're connected to the programmatic ecosystem, but it's actually a lot of work and investment (laughs) for publishers, especially small publishers to get hooked up into that system. And then when they do, they're often overlooked, right? Because the audience isn't big enough or there's not enough scale. So what are some things that like large agencies and bigger brands can do to incorporate these companies into their media plans? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's part of the the reason why we um, felt like building Colossus and building up Colossus was important, was to give them that opportunity where let us as a company do all that heavy lifting and therefore, just by working through us, you're able to reach those long tail sites that you normally have not been able to reach. And we do a significant amount of the vetting and the upfront work to bring them connected into that ecosystem. But what I also think um, is needed and is important is the time, energy, patience of working with those sites in order for you to get the yield that you're trying to get to. Um, a lot of times, and one of the issues that we've seen as media buyers, what they'll do is they'll run a, a test campaign for two or three weeks. If they see like something's not working, they just shut it off immediately. The optimization is really where the value is. Um, as a publisher, there's many things I can change on my side to help you yield the fruit that you know for a campaign performance that people are looking for. But communication is the number one thing that is needed in order for us to be able to achieve that. So the one piece of advice I've always given brands and agencies is one, if you have a partnership, work the partnership, work for optimization and have the patience to actually spend the time, energy and effort to get the fruit that you're looking for as it relates to campaign performance, because it's not just a binary, did it work, did it not, shut it off and move on to the next one type relationship. That's my biggest piece of advice that we like to give. Are you noticing that they're starting to do that differently in terms of optimization and, or is it still, is it still hard to get them to do that? It's still hard to get them to do that. Um, the, I think that's a, I'm going to say, I think there needs to be a, um, a reset of perception, if you will, inside of, um, some agencies and also with brand partners of a of a spirit of partnership in the relationship versus did it work? Did it not? and more move from a vendor relationship more to a partner relationship. I, I still mm. think as an industry, we need more work in that domain, um, especially when you're working with long tail publishers. Yeah. Do you think that like, just given, you know, what's going on in the economy right now with um, collapse of Silicon Valley bank, there's been rampant inflation. All marketers are sort of like tightening their belts, right? They're looking around, where can we save? Do you feel like that's going to have a negative impact on diverse owned media? Um, you know, I, I hope not. Um, that's what I would say. We're fighting hard every day to make sure that people see the value of working with diverse owned media. Um, and so historically, I will say um, that's usually the first to get cut. What we're hoping for this, um, I'm going to call it economic um, economic rejuvenation that we're going through right now, that um, that we actually take a different view and a different perspective of partnership versus vendor relationship when it comes to diverse media. Mm-hmm. So I want to uh, circle back to the block list issue mm-hmm. because um, it's a huge issue. It's one that impacts, you know, 
as well as, you know, diverse specific publishers, it impacts news publishers. We all saw people demonetizing COVID-19 related information during the pandemic because they don't want to be near bad news. Um, It's a particularly acute issue, I think, for diverse owned publishers. So I guess I'm going to ask sort of the same question I've been asking is, as aware as awareness gets raised about the issue, is anything actually improving? Yeah, I would say there's a lot more awareness. Um, processes are the hard part. How do you incorporate the processes across multiple levels inside of brands as well as inside of agencies in order to get the most accurate block or exclusion list that you can create? I think it's going to take a, a significant amount more training. I think it's also going to take a significant amount more diligence um, because vernaculars change, linguistics change, terms change. And so it's going, to rec- it's going to require cultural sensitivity inside of these organizations that I personally think um, we still have a lot of room to grow and develop for us to get to where we need to be. So I think, um, I think in the short run, yeah, things have gotten better because there is a significant amount more awareness. But in the long run, in regards to the processes and attitudes and the culture inside of those organizations, we still have a long way to go, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, block lists are just a blunt sort of tool in general, right, to use like keyword blocking. Are you seeing anything more nuanced develop in the marketplace that's sort of catching your attention when it comes to brand safety? Not yet. Um, I have not seen anything yet that has really you know, captured my attention that, oh, that might be the answer. Like you said, we need the scalpel, not the, uh, not the saw, if you will. And and it feels like exclusionless is more of a saw. Yeah. So I feel like this all kind of comes back to one of the initial topics we were talking about, which is a focus of your company, which is diversity from the inside, mm-hmm. um, which is really sort of like what pushes these changes. Where would you sort of I guess, how would you rate the industry's progress overall in in diversifying teams from the inside out? Do you feel like ad tech and marketing are still um, exclusive environments for for people of color or are things sort of getting better? Um, I will say this. I think, you know, I think it has gotten better um, to some extent after 2000. Um, I will say it feels like there's been a lot more progress, but um, where I think we have been a little bit of slow to change is really seeing more people of color in the, I would say, in the executive suite. And that's where I would like to see change. I think in the rank and file, if you will, you definitely are starting to see some movement and traction. And yes, it takes time for a pipeline to build for people to rise, but it is really in the um, executive suite that I would like to see more change. And I think that's the piece I'm really watching for the next two to three years to see if we see that impact actually occur there. Yeah. I think a lot of companies in the industry now are sort of realizing like, it's not just about bringing people in. It's the inclusion piece is super important um, and getting them to succeed and, and move on to the next level. Um, Do you feel like, you know, that is being fully embraced by the industry or is it our topics, are other topics like sustainability and other things sort of taking share away from the momentum that increased during the early days of the pandemic? Yeah, it's very interesting that you say that. I am starting to hear more and more about um, ESG and 
and your seed sustainability is starting to move into the conversation. Um, I will say part of the reason why I feel like us being public is really to give those people inside of those other organizations an opportunity when they start hitting those glass ceilings. Um, those are the candidates that I want because I know they have a lot more to add. I know they have a lot more value um, and they're just not going to give, they're not given the opportunity for whatever reason. Those are the kind of candidates that I'm looking for to hire inside of our organization. I do feel like um, we're, I can hear the tone and we're getting off the ball a little bit and it's not as prevalent as it was a year and a half, two years ago, but I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, that I'm wrong. And I'm hopeful that um, people will see that diversity, especially with the U.S. being 40% multicultural, is going to have to become more dominant in all conversations because we're becoming a very polarized, a very a multipolar uh, United States that's actually being built and purchasing power is spread out across many different communities across the United States. And the ROI is what should be the most important piece that people are looking for in business. So that's really the 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 thoughts that I have around that. And I hope, I'm hopeful that it changes, but we'll see. Mm. So what are your, um, now that Direct Digital Holdings is a public company, what are your ambitions? Like, where do you really want to want to take this business over the next few years? Yeah, I'm really looking to continue to grow. Um, our focus right now, uh, we had a very strong year last year of growth. Um, we really are looking to maintain that momentum into 2023 and 2024. And so um, while the economy is trying to figure out what it's doing, we are head down focus on working with the middle market clients and multicultural publishers to keep growing the overall business and hopefully make our publishers more money and, and hopefully make our middle market clients and customers that we work with more money as they go through this um, economic downturn, if you will. Yeah, I guess we haven't we haven't probed much about the mid market side of the business. Are there any major trends you're seeing from them in terms of in terms of um, the economy, how they're spending their media dollars? Um, you know, I know typically small businesses work a lot with Google and the big platforms. Is that diversifying at all? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's uh, that's the. It has been one of the most shocking, not shocking, but one of the most exciting pieces that we've seen. Um, what we have seen from our clients, um, especially ones that were participating in paid search, they said their campaign performance um, had decreased about 20% and their cost of campaigning had increased about 20% is the right way of looking at it. So they were already looking for alternatives. Um, and so the open CPM market um, is the alternative that a lot of them are starting to move towards. The other second trend that we saw was with COVID, many of the, I'm going to call them, you know, tier two, tier three media markets that we work with, um, they were so used to purchasing media in a um, traditional way, um, whether they were investing in their linear TV uh, with their local um, broadcast affiliate or with their terrestrial radio station, that once COVID hit, they realized it's either adapt or die. They had to move to digital. And so the conversations we're having on that front is really a, a seismic shift, if you will, of these entrepreneurs who are very smart, very intelligent, run you know $50 million pest control companies and, and companies that you interact with on a daily basis. They're scrambling to figure out how to move to digital. And so 
to me, once the genie's out of the bottle, there's no way it's going back. And that's one of the biggest trends that we've seen is that COVID kind of accelerated that change. And the third one is CTV, OTT, and video. Streaming platforms now are going to continue to rise because those local dollars are starting to move into that space. And we believe we're well positioned um, to help many of those companies and those markets actually make that transition. And that's what we're, we're very bullish and excited about um, that piece of the business. So, yeah, so much of the attention is on in the trades and in, you know, different industry discussions is about the big brands, right? And like what they're doing and where they're spending. But really it's the long tail. It's the mid-market, like small market businesses that move the economy. That's what built Google and Facebook's business. So um, gives me a little hope to hear that they're spreading the dollars around a little bit more. And it's only a good thing for diversity too. They are. And I would also say and and add into it, the Wall Gardens, um, they're going to have to retool um, their platforms. Um, because you're starting, like you said, those, those, uh, those middle market companies really built, they built their business off of those backs. And now those dollars are starting to move and looking for alternatives. So you're going to see those wall gardens starting to make adjustments to their, their platform and how they operate as well. So I think we already are. (laughs) Yeah, you are. (laughs) Another 10,000 layoffs at Facebook just this week. So lots changing in that space. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's great to learn about all the great work you're doing on the diverse media front. Um, and thank you for, for sharing all your wisdom with us. Absolutely. Um, absolutely enjoyed being here. And thank you for the invitation. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Campaign Chemistry on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.